This week on Geek Explained, it's officially December. To ring in the holiday season, we're taking a special look into one of the most iconic Christmas comics of all time. So join me as we put the Geek Explained spotlight on Batman Noel. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is our latest edition of the Geek Explained Spotlight series, where every single month I take a look at a specific comic, graphic novel, miniseries, whatever, and I tell you why it's so freaking great. And because it is officially the Christmas season, December 1st, as you are listening to this and as I am recording this, we are taking a look at one of my favorite Christmas comics of all time, probably one of the most iconic Christmas comics ever from the big two companies, that being, of course, Batman Noel, the just ridiculous Christmas Carol Batmanized story that was uh, written and illustrated by Lee Bermejo and is what a lot of people look at when it comes to just instant classic Batman stories. We also have the latest weekly review. That's right, the weekly review is back, and we are reviewing episodes one and two of Hawkeye. I cannot wait to talk about this series. Uh, The first two episodes dropped last Wednesday, and this week we are going to be telling you all about them. And of course, we have this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll be telling you about all the comics you should be picking up this week. But before we get into all of that goodness, let's go ahead and check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. No comics news this week, so we're going to jump into some sad miscellaneous news. Uh, Over the past week, it was reported that Stephen Sondheim, the legendary thespian, the man who created some of the most iconic musicals in history, unfortunately passed away. Uh, Probably the one that introduced me to his work was Sweeney Todd. Stephen Sondheim's impact on the business, on the art of theater is going to be felt for many, many years to come. I want to send all my love to the Sondheim family. I know they're having a hard time right now. And um, yeah, no other way to really say it except thank you, Stephen Sondheim, for the incredible art that you have gifted to this world. Going to roll right on to TV news. Uh, One piece of exciting TV news, especially if you're a fan of anime, and especially if you're a fan of Bleach. Bleach, I'm going to let you know, was was one of my favorite anime manga growing up. Um, Bleach was, of course, part of the big three, alongside One Piece and Naruto. And really 
unfortunately did not have the same kind of staying power as the other two. Naruto still going on with Boruto. We've got One Piece just passing its 1,000th chapter, its 1,000th episode of the anime. Bleach kind of fell by the wayside, both with the manga as well as with the anime. But uh, it was announced that at the, I believe, Jump Festa, uh, sometime I believe it's the end of this month, uh, they're going to be debuting brand new footage and a trailer for the Bleach anime. It is returning for the Thousand Year Blood War arc in 2022. Um, this, as far as I know, is the final arc of the manga. Um, I might... Someone's going to correct me, but uh, this is really exciting. I love Bleach. Bleach is one of my favorites, and it still, I would say, is in the top 10 for me when it comes to anime all time, and I'm just really excited to see that there is more news about this. Uh, the uh, mangaka Tite Kubo is a legend and unfortunately uh, never really got to the heights of what uh, he should have gone to when it came to when it came to Bleach, and with it coming up on the 20th anniversary, there's all sorts of rumors that we might get an extra manga chapter. Who knows? I will be waiting with bated breath. I'm very excited to see updates about this, so keep your eyes peeled for the for the latter half of this month. And we're going to wrap things up with film news here, where uh, three pieces of film news. First off, a uh, piece of DC news. The DC League of Super Pets trailer came out, and it was... Fine. Um, I'm still not excited about this movie. Um, I'm sure people are going to enjoy it. I'm sure the target audience that it's going for is going to have a good time with it. Just not my cup of tea, which is totally okay. If it's your cup of tea and you loved it, awesome. I'm really excited for you. But for me, it was just kind of a lot of stuff that we've seen before. Uh, One thing that I think a lot of people hadn't seen before was... Spider Monday. Spider Monday was this past week as of this recording, and it was the November 29th drop of Spider-Man No Way Home tickets. Crashed pretty much every single ticketing site that you could find, and it's on. We've got two weeks, and they are going to be dropping this movie. And it looks like, even though from interviews and reports that this film, No Way Home, is being treated as a uh, basically a conclusion of the Tom Holland Spider-Man franchise, Amy Pascal, our girl Amy Pascal, <laughs> uh, said in an interview that the partnership between uh, Sony and the MCU is going to be continuing after No Way Home. We will be getting another Spider-Man trilogy following this. However... It looks like from other insider sources that this might not be the case. No plans have been made for another uh, Spider-Man trilogy. We do know that with the current deal that was struck in 2019, the uh, current partnership, the current agreement is that we get this film and then Spider-Man appearing in another MCU film, probably an Avengers film because they want to save that. And then after that, the current agreement is done. If they decide to go forward with a new agreement, awesome, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen here. So we'll just have to see. Who knows? I'm not sure, but I'm sure that we're going to get updates on this 
if not by the release of No Way Home, then by the end of the month. And then finally, to wrap things up here, we now know that Batgirl is officially filming. The director of the film released a quick little uh, BTS picture on Instagram showing off possibly a new status quo for Barbara Gordon. Uh, It was very clearly a shot inside the GCPD. Logo looks great, even though I'm sure it's going to change on a little clacker. And it looks like from a name placard that Barbara Gordon might be an officer of the law following in her father's footsteps. Uh, Again, I don't know what to expect from this. We do know that the cast is stacked so far. and We only know three actors in it. We have uh, Leslie Grace playing Barbara Gordon. We have J.K. Simmons returning to the role of uh, Jim Gordon. And we have the world's greatest treasure, Brendan Fraser. either playing uh, Firefly, Carmine Falcone, no one's been able to make an official confirmation yet. Lots of rumors swirling around. We'll just have to see. But this is really exciting, and I am looking forward to seeing more Batgirl stuff because this movie has been in development hell for a really long time, and I am chomping at the bit to watch it. So that is going to do it for this week's news. And speaking of Gotham City, that is going to roll us right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, which is our latest Geek Explained Spotlight, the final Geek Explained Spotlight of 2021, as we take a look at Batman Noel. Okay, you want me to tell you a story? I gotta be honest, I'm not so good at it. My dad, boy, could he spin a yarn. He could suck you in right from the beginning like any good storyteller and keep you stuck to your seat, hook, line, and sinker. Yep, dad was probably better at telling stories than anything else. Just ask my mom. Me, I'm uh, better with my hands. This story, it's, uh, it's a doozy. I remember dad told it to me one Christmas. He was pretty sauced, and at first I thought he was making it up as he went along, but in the end, it all made sense. Let me tell you, some weird stuff happens in this story. You may find some of it hard to swallow. First thing, though, you gotta tell me something. Because for this story to make sense, for it to mean anything, you have to believe in something. Something very important. You have to believe people can change. Those were the opening lines of Lee Bermejo's Batman Noel. This story, which was Bermejo's first ever art and writing credit, has become one of the most famous Batman stories ever. Whether it's the writing, the direct influence of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, all the way down to Bermejo's signature 
style of art. The neo-gothic Batman that we've come to know and love and we've seen in so many adaptations and other art pieces throughout most of our modern uh, experiences with Batman. Batman Noel is a story that people keep coming back to, and on a surface level, it doesn't really make sense why. It doesn't really make sense why people keep coming back to, essentially, A Christmas Carol, but with Batman. And when I was trying to think of the story I wanted to cover for the Geeksplained Spotlight series uh, in December, there was... A few different stories that I had on the uh, on the list, but Batman Noel just kept coming back, and I didn't know why, right? I hadn't read it in a while. I hadn't really even looked at it, picked it off my shelf in God knows how long. But when I did, when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to reread through this and see if I, you know, see if it speaks to me, it did. Weirdly enough, you know, we're all pretty familiar with Bermejo's style, right? It's very highly articulated. It sounds like an action figure, uh, but no, it's seriously, uh, it's very highly articulated, lots of detailed definition, very realistic in its uh, portrayal of characters, of architecture. The architecture itself draws a lot from Gothic architecture, neo-Gothic architecture, making Gotham City feel like not just a city that Batman would inhabit, but a city right outside your window. You know, that famous adage from Marvel where, you know, it's the Marvel Universe is the world outside your window. Bermejo's art always has a way of making it feel like whatever ridiculous story is happening, it's happening just down the street or on the other side of town. And what this story does in essence, and what the story did for me when I looked at it and kind of remembered that, yeah, this is the Batman story that people keep coming back to because it's very pretty to look at. It's got a tactical Batman whose design is pulled for everything nowadays, whether it's film, whether it's animation, whether it's video games, especially video games. Even if you don't think you've seen the Batman Noel bat suit, you've seen the Batman Noel bat suit. And in that way, in this kind of in this atmosphere where a lot of Batman stories are kind of overrated, uh personally to me, you may disagree. Um I didn't know how I was going to feel about reading Batman Noel when I picked it up again to reread it for this episode. And those opening lines talking about a family sharing stories on Christmas, about someone who's not very good at a story attempting to tell it just the same way that his father did, and the fact that for the story to work, for the story to be as impactful, for it to mean anything... You, as the reader, have to believe that people can change. And that was something that I had to take with me as I reread Batman Noel. Now, 
A little bit of backstory going into this. Uh, Lee Bermejo is one of the most, I would say, prolific Batman artists, or really just comic book artists in general, of the modern era. And his work really got, you know, kickstarted as an intern in Wildstorm. Jim Lee was kind of the guy who was mentoring him at the time. And Lee Bermejo is mostly known for his art. Right. He was one of he was the co-creator of the or the co uh yeah, we'll say creator. Uh the co-creator of the Joker comic that people absolutely lose their minds over. Uh he did the art in that, he created this sort of realistic, sort of trippy, sort of gothic world for these characters to inhabit and those designs that he put into this joker book do carry over into this book into every single time he draws batman his batman i will say as a kind of a feather in his cap is always more or less the same design which makes it iconic and you can easily say that's lieber mayo's batman you know in the way that everybody nowadays is like oh there's you know 25 different batmans going on because every single comic has to put its own stamp on it and when a artist comes on they've got to twist and do something new Lieber Mayho's Batman has always kind of looked the same which is not just really cool when it comes to consistency but also helps us draw this tapestry of it all being one gigantic story every single time that Lieber Mayho does any kind of guest spot whether it's you know for a page in a Batman you know celebration book or whether it's a variant cover every single time his Batman pops up it feels like it's part of that world and it feels like you're getting a snapshot of his Batman operating in his Gotham City against his Joker or his Catwoman or any number of villains that he's reimagined and brought into this you know, this world that these characters inhabit. And there's a lot of, I think, uh, rightfully so, uh, praise heaped upon him for his character designs. I mean, the Joker from that Joker book is rumored, it's never been officially confirmed, that it was heavily either, it was either a heavy inspiration or heavily inspired uh, Heath Ledger's Joker. And you can see the obvious parallels between the two when you look at their designs. And every single modern interpretation of Batman, especially when it comes to film, has been kind of chasing the Bermejo design, right? They're trying to get more tactical, more aggressive, more, you know, this could be out in the real world. And... There aren't many Batman suits in the history of his comic book career that look so easily translatable to live action than the Batman Noel suit. And in that way, Bermejo gets to kind of put his, you know, his name amongst artists who have defined the way that Batman looks throughout his entire, you know, history as a comic book character. Uh, Artists like Tim Sale, like Greg Capullo, like Jock, like all the way back to, you know, the days of uh, Bill Finger, who designed the original Bat costume. Like, Lieber Mayho knows what he's doing, and his Batman is so uniquely his Batman that 
it becomes almost a placeholder. If you're looking for, oh, I want a tactical Batman, everyone kind of turns towards the Batman Noel suit. And it's interesting to me that this book kind of takes the idea of this monolith of Bermejo's work, this monolith of Batman, and tells you, okay, this character who's you know, stood the test of time for over 80 years at the at the point of recording this, even he can change. And so our story picks up on the rooftops of Gotham City. It's Christmas Eve. Batman is chasing down leads for who else? The Joker. And as we kind of go into this story, what I think is unique about it is that we don't ever get the inner dialogue of Batman, which is, I think, a hallmark in Batman comics just as much as in Spider-Man comics. Spider-Man comics and Batman comics, I would say, are the two uh, biggest proponents of, all right, we're not going to do any, you know, even if we don't do any dialogue, you're going to get boxes and boxes and boxes of thought bubbles, of inner dialogue, the whole deal. And... Not that that's a bad thing at all. It, oftentimes it works. Uh, but it's very interesting that this story doesn't have any of that. It has dialogue between characters. But the scope of the story and the scope of the, I guess, the inner dialogue, the inner thoughts of the characters is explicitly given to you through the narration. Through the narration of who's telling the story. And though the narrator isn't revealed until the end, you immediately get a sense of who this narrator is, right? The opening lines that I, you know, read out at the beginning of this segment um, paint a picture of who's telling the story. He's a working class guy. He's telling the story to a kid. Like, it is very clearly him trying to tell the story and it almost kind of being in the way that on paper this book feels Christmas Carol slapped on, here's a Batman story. And as Batman runs across the rooftops, you get the iconography of Gotham City, the bat signal shining high in the sky. The whole promise of the premise that people can change seems really far away, right? Because we've seen all this before. We know what this looks like. Batman's roughing up some guy named Bob who is, you know, a money runner or a drug runner for the Joker. And as he spooks him, scares him off, sends him off into the night, we see, like, how Gotham sees Batman. You know, the first time that we see him in all his glory, his full body, is him dropping from a rooftop and looking terrifying as hell. Like, you would be... I know I would be absolutely pissing myself if I just looked up and saw this Batman dropping from the sky on top of me. And as the story starts, we get this, you know, we get this story through the narration that we've heard before. Scrooge, his, you know, his lowly worker, Bob, who he doesn't appreciate, makes him work overtime. But he gives him a little stay of execution for him working on Christmas. He says, you can have the night off, you can have Christmas off, but the day after Christmas, you are going to be working your ass off. And in that same way, we see Batman let Bob go, though we've seen him dole out, 
you know, punishment to anyone who involves themselves in the criminal world in Gotham. He lets him go. And as we see, he's put a tracer on him because he wants to use him as bait to attract the Joker. He's been running down leads, trying to find the Joker all night, hasn't had any luck. So he is going to try and reel the Joker into him. And as the night goes on, we see Batman is in a state, right? He's very clearly older, a seasoned Batman who has been around the block. And we see that he's also operating alone. And a lot of times, though, people like to say, oh, you know, Batman works best when he's alone. I would vehemently disagree. I think that Batman works best when he does have a supporting cast, whether it be Robin, whether it be Alfred, Jim Gordon. And thankfully, we do get some Batman supporting cast here. But the supporting cast isn't as important in this specific story as... Bob himself, Bob, the lowly, uh, the lowly minion, the lowly hench. Uh, as he goes home, we see that he has a son. He has a son named Tim. Very oddly similar to the uh, to the Christmas Carol. But as the two of them are kind of living in squalor, we hear through the narration that Tim's got some hospital bills that Bob is struggling to pay. And he is a single father trying to make ends meet. And the two of them are just trying to get through Christmas. The, the saddest thing is watching this kid with like little, this little potted, you know, this dead potted plant. That's just branches who made ornaments out of like a little uh, soldier toy. And, a, you know, the broken top of a beer bottle, and like a, a can of soup. Like it's, it is heartbreaking. And it's sad because this is the uh, this is the reality for a lot of people this time of year. On the complete opposite side, we get to see Bruce inside of the mansion. And this is when we really get a sense of where we are in Bruce's timeline, right? Because Bruce is not, you know, an old man, but he's very clearly been doing this a while. He's chiseled. He's scarred up. He is been at this you know this superhero game this vigilante game for quite some time and as him and alfred are having one of their many tete-a-tetes uh we see what i think is the most telling part of this the little hall of costumes little costume case which was i think popularized by the animated series um, but really it's, it's, it's just a great use and a great visual, uh, cue to tell you where we are in Batman's timeline. We see a very, almost like Adam West inspired suit that Bermejo designed, which has been up and is very clearly collecting dust. And on the other side of the main bat suit that he's using, we see a Robin suit very much posted up in the way that we've seen before. And as the narration continues on telling the story of the Christmas Carol with Batman in the role of Scrooge, it talks about Scrooge having a partner at one point when things seemed brighter, when the days were a little bit shorter and fun was in the air. And we get to see that Robin is unfortunately not with us anymore. Something happened. It's unclear in this specific... um, this specific universe whether this is jason todd or if it's dick grayson we don't know um 
Robin is never given a first name in this story, and with it being its own continuity, it could be anything. However, what we do know for sure is that Robin used to be palling around with Bruce and that his loss significantly changed him. That he has grown harsher, he has grown darker, he has grown more angry. And as time goes on, and as Bruce you know, throws himself further and further into his vigilante work, he's losing sight of the stuff that used to be held so dear by him in the days when Robin was patrolling the rooftops alongside him. We also see that he's probably got pneumonia. He's got a little cough, and by little, I mean a very big cough. Uh, We see him interacting with Jim Gordon, the two of them having, you know, their banter that we normally see from them. And Gordon gives Bruce a lead. He tells him that, you know, your your old feline friend is in town and she is stirring up trouble, but she also might have a lead on the Joker. And so this is where we get the crux of our story. This is where the story really kicks off because as Batman heads off into the night, we get the narration that the ghost of... Scrooge's old partner, this being in this case the ghost of Robin, informing him that he would be visited by three ghosts the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And the ghost of Christmas past comes in the form of one Selena Kyle. The two of them reuniting, and it's very clear that they don't have the kind of relationship that they do, you know, currently. In the comics, or at least recently in the comics, they've it's much more that classic Batman and Catwoman deal where she's still a criminal, he's you know letting things slide, but he doesn't have time to chase her anymore. She even talks about how he's gotten old, he's gotten angry, and he, you know, once upon a time, nothing would stop you from chasing me across these rooftops. And it's very clear that the loss of his partner has shaken Bruce and has changed fundamentally the way that he does things. And as Selena recounts their old, you know, their old adventures, their old battles against each other, we get a really great little uh, flashback, again, beautifully rendered by Bermejo, talk, you know, showing a showing a 1960s uh, Adam West, Burt Ward style uh, rescue where Robin is tied up and Catwoman's got a tiger and Batman busts in through a window. It's very heroic and it goes to show with every single time we flash back to these moments just how dark and how I don't want to say evil but how um, malicious Batman has become because of the loss of Robin and for those of you who are aware of that period of time between Jason Todd and Tim Drake when Batman was just the worst uh this would seem very familiar batman losing his partner drove him to go further to become darker to step over the line every once in a while and not to the point that he would kill people but to the point where it got a little scary on whether he would or not and as he chases uh catwoman across the rooftops we see you know, flashes of the adventures that they used to have. We see villains like the Penguin, the Scarecrow, Two-Face, and of course, the Laughing Man himself. And as Batman continues to 
chase Selena across the rooftops, there's a moment where he just misses, falling from the top of this building all the way down to an out to an alley below and it's very clear that his rage is blinding him and is not allowing him to see what's right in front of him which is great because that's when the ghost of christmas present arrives in the form of superman and really quick i just want to gush about superman's um superman's depiction here uh i I'm usually not a fan of when people try to go hyper-realistic with Superman designs, because it always, always, always ends up looking over-designed. That's why I really love that Fleischer Superman suit that Tyre Hecklin wears in Superman and Lois. I hope we see more of that. Um, But here, Bermejo's ability to give Superman this you know, still homemade yet oddly, you know, alien look when it comes to his costume. It's still classic Superman. There's no redesign in the way that he redesigned Batman. Still very much the classic uh, boy in blue that we all, you know, come to know and love. But there's this ethereal glow about him that, you know, the narration and, you know, the subtext gives off, you know, this is his, you know, the solar energy that kind of emits off him. But also it's this aura of joy, this aura of hope that Batman very clearly does not have. Uh, Superman gives him, you know, the once over with his x-ray vision is like, you are sick. You are, you are dealing with something. There's something in your lungs. I don't know what to do. Like I'm not a medical professional, but you need to get that checked out. And he says that he's here to help. He's here to help Batman. He wants to, help him out with whatever he needs. And Batman, of course, pushes him away, but he eventually does relent. And he says, before we, you know, before you get me home, I need to make a pit stop. And they stop at the house of Bob, or rather the really rundown apartment of Bob, where he and his son are trying to have the moment of peace. You know, Timmy is obviously a big Batman fan. And even though, Bob just had a terrifying run-in with the creature of the night. He is still trying to be as supportive as he can of his son. Bruce is, of course, hoping to use the idea that Bob has a son to get criminals off the street, hoping to use the example of Bob to turn Timmy away from this life of crime that Bruce says is inevitable for him. There's no way that scum like this guy referencing Bob can you know turn over a new leaf because once you're in it you're in it and Clark is kind of trying to do that thing with his friend where he's like look I know you're wrong but I'm gonna like humor you for a second and he says hey can I just can I show you something and he scoops under Batman's arms and lifts him up and takes him around Gotham, giving him snapshots of everyone celebrating Christmas Eve, whether it's the homeless under the bridge in Park Row, whether it's neighbors surprising an elderly woman, you know, who's a little lonely on Christmas, to the police themselves trying to enjoy a quiet night in a city where there are not many to be found they swing by 
Jim Gordon's apartment where they see him, you know, hosting an officer who's currently on, you know, on patrol. And the two of them have this very frank conversation where, you know, the cop is like, do you ever, you know, do you ever wonder if Batman will go over, you know, step over the line, go over the edge one day? And Jim's like, yeah, all the time. But he, you know, Jim implicitly trusts Batman for whatever reason and this is enough for Bruce to want to be taken away as they sail over the night sky in Gotham the two of them get to have just a little moment surveying the city from a different perspective and Clark finally drops Bruce off at the Batmobile tells him if he needs anything to let him know and he flies back to Metropolis to deal with the latest disaster going on there however as Bruce walks back up to the Batmobile it explodes and even though I'm pretty sure Superman would have been there to help narratively it makes sense he's dealing with stuff in Metropolis he's dealing with world ending crises every single day so this might slip under the radar however after the explosion of the Batmobile Batman is beset upon by the ghost of Christmas future that being of course the man who laughs himself the Joker the man who Batman was hoping to reel in found him and as batman is dragged into gotham cemetery half conscious you know feeling near dead he starts to get visions and he starts to see a world where the continuation of this hard line uh, stance that he's taken on crime that if you basically if you commit one crime you're a criminal for life and you know taking you off the street by any means necessary is going to reduce the criminal population as the joker throws batman into an unmarked grave batman begins to see the future of what this hard line stance would breed and as he sees this vision of a Gotham on fire, he sees gangs, sees people who are driven by the same ideology that he is currently driven by, that there is no hope for people to change. There's no hope for criminals to do the right thing. If I kill you, at least I'm taking one less criminal off the streets of Gotham. And he sees that this line has spurred people into revolt, into riots. Gangs who are driven only by their self-interest go to war nightly on every street in the city, making the, the city even more uh, unsafe than it was prior. And in a very uh, almost Kingdom Come-esque way of the younger generations taking the wrong lessons from the older generations and it, you know, costing the lives of innocent civilians. And as Batman finally wakes from this vision, he is haunted by this image of not only the streets on fire, but also his allies, Jim Gordon being arrested and brought to trial and sentenced to prison for helping him, of the Wayne estate being sold to money-grubbing social climbers trying to get their hands on the legacy that the Wayne family built. And finally, 
It's the moment that he sees in this vision the face of a disappointed Alfred, someone who had stood by him from the beginning and finally saw everything crumble to the ground that he wakes up. He fights his way out of the coffin. He fights his way out of the grave, up back to the world of the living, and he says that he needs to stop trying to justify his, you know, the death of his parents. Stop trying to justify the death of his partner. And he needs to learn how to live. Back at Bob's apartment, we see that after failing to finish the job that Batman had halted him from, Bob is visited by the Joker, who breaks into the apartment, goes to injure Timmy. However, Bob defends his son and is on, about to be on the receiving end of a gunshot when Batman crashes through the window, echoing the old Batman that we saw in the flashback of him chasing Selina. This is now not a Batman who uses people as bait. This is not a Batman who is willing to let Bob die if it means one less criminal body on the streets of Gotham. Batman saves people. And he's back to doing what he does best. So he bursts through the window, disarms the Joker, just in time for Bob to pick up the gun. He points the gun at the Joker, full of rage, full of that same righteous vengeance that Batman had found himself overwhelmed by at the beginning of the story and through the majority of the story. And as the two of them stand over the Joker, Batman tells Bob, you are not a criminal. Show him and show your son the man you can be. Show him how to be a hero. And Bob chooses to be that hero. Joker's arrested. Bob and Timmy are brought into the safety of the GCPD. And as the night ends, we find Bruce passed out in the Batcave. Alfred giving him a blanket to let him rest. He probably sleeps the best that he's slept in years. And on Christmas morning, Bob and Timmy get another visitor. Not another criminal, not another clown-faced maniac. He gets a visit from some Wayne Tech employees, from some Wayne Industries guys who bring in a proper Christmas tree, who give him a job, saying that he was specifically requested and as the christmas day dawns as we see the night otherwise being uneventful the officers of the gcpd finally getting a break we see young tim we see tim run off into the street with his batman cape slung around his shoulders we see that batman isn't regarded as this figure of terror anymore at least not in the heart of tim and maybe bob as well that he's able to inspire again and hopefully change back to the hero that he used to be and change for the better and the narration ends by saying like i told you at the beginning change ain't exactly easy to believe in but i guess it's easier to swallow than three ghosts
The old man said he liked the story so much because it had a happy ending. He said in real life, happy endings are like unicorns. I asked him if he believed it was true or if he thought it was just some yarn someone made up to get their kids to fall asleep. He told me it didn't really matter if it was true. It was what the story meant that was so important. I don't know, kiddo. What do you think? What's the moral of the story? Revealing that our narrator was, in fact, Bob. That he had been telling the story. That now, I'm assuming years on, even if it's just a year on, he and Timmy are going to be alright. And in that, we get to see a happy ending. And even though the narration and the writing kind of leaves the story open-ended to what the moral of the story is, I think the story is pretty clear. You know, there's this beautiful thing about Christmas time. I love Christmas. Um, It's genuinely, it's probably my favorite holiday. I love everything that it represents. I'm old and sappy like that. But what this story gave me, picking it up again, rereading it, was this challenge at the beginning of the story. Because the story, as I said before, challenges you, the reader, not just Bob's kid, Tim, who he's, you know, telling the story to. It challenges you, the reader, someone who is either picking this book up for the first time, has read it again. Uh, Maybe you're a fan of Batman. Maybe you're just getting into comics. It challenges you to know and to believe that people can change. And there's something beautiful in that when I reread this again, because no matter how much I want to look at this and say, ah, you know, the art's great. You know, the story is great because it's basically a Christmas carol. What's great about this is you see people change. You see people change throughout the story. You see some people change for the worse. You see some people change for the better. And in Bruce's case, just like in Scrooge's case, in the original Christmas Carol, you get to see someone take stock of the past, see the present, and hopefully change the future. And... As Batman Noel is one of these Christmas stories that I love so much, I love Christmas, um, it's going to stay on my shelf. It's going to be brought out every so often because just when I need it, it'll be picked off the shelf again when I need to believe that people can change. dangerous definitely not this one you'll have to say definitely like that holy there are arrows more dangerous than that one it is now time for the weekly review this is the segment of our show where i review something weekly and here and now in this episode we are reviewing the season premiere the first two episodes of marvel's newest disney plus show 
Hawkeye. I was not sure if I was going to uh, do this because, you know, there's a lot going on right now (laughs) and it's only going to get busier as time goes on. But with, I mean, with just how good this show is, I really wanted to talk about it. Uh, We're going to be reviewing episodes one and two, Never Meet Your Heroes and Hide and Seek, respectively. Um, Before we get into it, though, before we talk about the things that it does right, I want to really quickly talk about what it does wrong, because I don't think it would be genuine for me, I, it would be disingenuous for me to talk about how great the show is without, you know, pointing out the elephant in the room. And that's our boy David Aja. Uh, or Aha. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm so sorry. I always say Aja. But there is a ridiculous, almost absurd amount of inspiration taken from Aja's art style when it comes to the opening credits, when it comes to the set design, when it comes to character work that is ripped straight from Aja's work on this show, and yet he is not being credited at all for any of it. Thankfully, Matt Fraction was brought on as a consulting producer. That's awesome. I love it. He wrote the series, but a lot of people remember the sh- the hawkeye run for its aesthetics for its art for the brand new look at hawkeye as our tired millennial avenger and the fact that it's so blatantly inspired by and ripping off uh aja's work without giving him so much as a credit or a special thank you is really really upsetting and it sucks um, this doesn't, I don't think, come down to the show. I don't think it comes down to anyone who's working on the show. I'm sure if they could, they would credit him and give him all the credit he deserves. Um, ultimately, it comes down to the people who own the show. It comes down to Marvel. It comes down to Disney. It comes down to the people in the offices who are making these decisions who should be giving credit where it's due. It's not the first time we've seen this happen, but I think it is the most egregious because it is... So clearly, David Aja's work. But they're choosing not to even reference him. And with all of the stuff that's going on in his life, um, it do the right thing. I'm just going to say it. I know that Marvel and Kevin, Kevin Feige and all of them listen to this podcast. I'm just letting you know, Marvel, Kevin, Kev, I'm speaking to you. Credit the man. Pay the man. Give him what he's owed. Just going to say that. So that is my piece on that. Moving on to the show itself, I freaking love this show. And that's what makes it so complicated for me because I love, I loved both of the premiere episodes. Uh, last week they dropped episodes one and two. And I love them from start to finish, both of them. And that's what makes it so complicated to talk about this show because I love it and yet I understand that there's an injustice being done here. So I'm going to talk about the things that I like. The first episode, Never Meet Your Heroes, was a great establishing, you know, piece for both Kate and Clint, who are equally leads. I'm so happy that Kate is essentially our audience POV and that Clint is brought in for the people who know or want someone who they recognize. Uh, Haley Steinfeld is an absolute treasure. Uh, She's been great in everything she's ever been in, and this is no different. She is picture perfect. She is Kate ripped straight from the page, and I love her rapport with Jeremy Renner. Um, 
Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye has always been kind of the ta- the tired Hawkeye, which I really I enjoy it. A lot of people like to bag on that on the MCU's Hawkeye, but I love tired Hawkeye. And this one leans so heavily into it while also mixing in a lot of the Fraction Aja Hawkeye flavor by making him tired millennial dad. Hawkeye, which is great. The relationship between Kate and Clint, which is much more of like a brother-sister, slightly attraction thing that they've got uh, in the comics is now kind of moved into a father-daughter deal, which I kind of dig, to be honest. Um, Clint's always kind of been the tired dad of the adventures, so I appreciate that that's moving on to this new generation. It makes sense. Um, his rapport with her is really good. Uh, the episode, you know, kicks off with us meeting Kate during the Battle of New York, and I love, I, I love that the Battle of New York is an inciting incident for so many people. I don't know why, but I love it from a world-building standpoint that everyone can go oh yeah, where were you when this happened? And it's like this whole thing that, you know, kickstarts careers, allows people to talk about their trauma, and it, like, really, I just, I love it so much. Um, But I dug it. I like the setup with Eleanor and Jack Duquesne, also known as the Swordsman. Uh, He's got that stupid mustache and everything, and I hate him. He's great. He's so good. Um, while also giving us the first look at the tracksuit mafia, who every single time they say bro, I cheer. Uh, bro, it's just, it's best. And we got an interesting change for Kazi, aka the clown, in that he's part of the gang prior to him becoming the clown. So I'm interested to see how they square that circle but with all of the setup for kate here her happening upon this super villain auction stealing the ronin suit finding lucky the two of them coming together and clint ultimately uh leaving his christmas vacation with his kids to deal with this i thought it was a great establishing episode for Kate and gets us into what we're going to see for the rest of the season. With episode two, Hide and Seek, it it got even better. It got even better because Jack Duquesne's father, Armand, one of seven, uh, is murdered. uh, And I'm just going to say it. It's probably Eleanor. I'm just... I'm going to put the prediction out there now. If it's not Jack, it was Eleanor. And with uh, the murder mystery going on you know i love me a good murder mystery kate and clint are trying to figure their thing out we got to see a little bit of them dealing with the tracksuit mafia uh i love that you know they're when they're firebombing kate's place when they throw one up clint breaks the glass in the window catches the molotov cocktail and throws it back just super freaking cool i loved that shot in the trailer and i love it even more here um And then we got to see Clint go to a LARP, a LARP event. I loved it. I think it's a hell of a missed opportunity not to put him in the classic Hawkeye suit. Put him in the Hawkeye suit. This was the perfect opportunity and you squandered it. And I don't know why they do this. I know it's going to look silly. His costume in the comics is inherently silly. But this is the perfect opportunity for it. Like, come on. 
anyway, that aside, um, I really dug the LARPing stuff. We got to see Grills, who is very different from the comics, but I still, I loved seeing Grills. Um, and I like that they're pulling not just from the David, Aja, Matt Fraction run of Hawkeye, but they're also pulling from Hawkeye Freefall by Matt Rosenberg and Otto Schmidt, which I adored. I loved that comic. And seeing them pull elements from that as well is really freaking cool. Uh, we got to see more of the Tracksuit Mafia, which is always great. And then at the end, we got the reveal that Echo is running the Tracksuit Mafia. What? Um, this is a huge departure from her comic book origin, though involving her with the Ronin stuff I think is really cool because if you are on the up and up with her from the comics, she was the original Ronin. Um, just cool stuff. Just cool stuff all around. I just, I, I love it. I really love it. Um, first two episodes were kick-ass. I absolutely adored them. And it's Christmas-themed. If you want me to like something... Chances are, if you put it at Christmas, you've already got me 80% of the way there. So I give the first two episodes huge thumbs up. Cannot wait to watch the rest of this series as we go along. But seriously, Marvel, just pay David Aja. Just pay him. Just pay him. Just pay him. That's that's my uh, that's my soapbox. That's me. That is going to do it for the weekly review. So tune in next week for episode three. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's comics countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's comics countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, it was very tough, but ultimately I chose The Death of Doctor Strange number three, written by Jed McKay with art by Lee Garbett. I I have been loving this series so far. I really, really dig it. I love young Doctor Strange. I love that he's a little bit angrier and a little bit more uh, cold. And it's just, it's a great, great book. You should be checking this out, especially if you're a Strange fan, especially if you're hyped for his appearance in No Way Home. This is a great time to get into this book. Uh, and there's tons of tie-ins, which I'm usually not a fan of, but with the characters that they are choosing to have the tie-ins for, big thumbs up from me. But that's last week's books. This week's books, we got 16, count them, 16 books for you to check out out so uh we got a lot to dive into let's go ahead and dive into it first off kicking things off with batman annual number one of 2021 uh this is written by james tyne the fourth with art by ricardo lopez ortiz this is it this is the final james tyne the fourth batman book before it switches over to the joshua williamson saga so uh and appropriately i think this is sending off a character that uh Tynan has obviously put a lot of time into, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Ghostmaker Conclusion Batman 107 through 111 have featured an epic, brutal tale of Batman's frenemy Ghostmaker in the backup stories, and the senses-shattering conclusion to the saga is here. 
Ghostmaker has fought his way across Devil's Skull Island, and he's about to face every single villain from his rogues gallery at once. Can even this legendary warrior survive the onslaught? So yeah, the backups through uh, through 107 through 111 have all featured Ghostmaker. This is finishing off that story. Um, I have said before that I wasn't, you know, I didn't love the Ghostmaker backups, but they are fun, and they are very much like this anime-style battle for Ghostmaker, so I dig it. Um, this is going to be a great way to send off Tynan with one of his creations. And speaking of annuals, next up we've got Robin 2021 Annual Number 1, written, of course, by Joshua Williamson with art by Roger Cruz. And this is going to be an interesting one. This is taking a brief halt in the main Robin story, which just kicked off uh, a big cliffhanger for me, uh, to give a little backstory. So Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Tale of the Tape. The League of Lazarus has introduced Robin to a wide range of some of the youngest, deadliest fighters on the planet. From XXL and his hype squad to Respawn and his Deathstroke fandom, and these killers mean business. But no fighter has made an impact on Damian Wayne like Flatline, the former sidekick of Lord Deathman and one of the most elite combatants in the tournament. But who is Flatline? Uncover the secret origin of the breakout fighter star of Robin in this oversized special that puts the KO in comic book. Plus, Atlantean fighters join the tournament? Come on, Mother Soul, never order the fish, always order the steak. By the way, I just... That puts the KO in comic book? Excellent. Excellent work. Oh my god. Uh, I just so freaking good. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to learn more about Flatline. She's been one of the most intriguing characters of this Robin run. So I'm looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have another annual Detective Comics 2021 annual number one, a trio of bat annuals. Um, this is written by Mariko Tamaki and Matthew Rosenberg with art by David LaFam. And this is not just an annual, but also looks like the prelude to the next uh, big Batman story in the pages of Detective Comics. So I'm excited about this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The meager man. We don't choose who we save, Bruce. You treat the patient who needs your help. Thomas Wayne. Shadows of the Bat begins here. In the prelude to January's epic new Detective Comics event, Mayor Nakano has signed off on the construction of a new Arkham Tower in the heart of Gotham City, and the Bat family is torn. Batman has long seen Arkham as a, ne as a necessary, if flawed, cog in the gears of Gotham City, a temporary solution to larger problems that in many ways mirrors his approach as Batman. Nightwing, however, who grew up watching Arkham mutate into a villain factory, believes a different approach is needed. But Bruce and Dick will need to see eye to eye on more than just Arkham Tower, as a new villain known as the Meager Man wreaks havoc in the streets and becomes the embodiment of Gotham's broken system. So this sounds awesome. I love think pieces like this, where it has two characters, especially Bruce and Dick, debate 
the merits of some place like got like arkham asylum so i'm looking forward to this for sure but our first book that's not an annual <laughs> is wonder girl number five written and illustrated by joelle jones and adriana mello and this book's been good uh it's been moving a little slow for me and i think that really just comes down to the release schedule it doesn't feel like it's coming out monthly it feels like it's coming out bi-monthly but um the book's been good the art's been great writing's been fun so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here homecoming part five yara stands alone as her world is torn apart after an unexpected betrayal that shakes Yara to her very core, she ventures out and finds the lost tribe of the Amazons, the Escasida. Will a reunion with her lost sisters finally give Yara the answers she's been looking for, or is she now more lost than ever as she ventures out to find those who wish to never be found? That sounds really cool. And I love the different cells of Amazons. I love that idea. So I'm looking forward to this. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1037. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson and Sean Aldridge with art by Miguel Mendoncha and Adriana Mello. And this is... Uh, I mean, we are in the War World saga, and it is kicked off in a bombastic fashion. So I am excited about this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The War World Saga Part 2 slash Martian Manhunter, A Face in the Crowd. The face-off you've been waiting for. Superman and the Authority finally face Mongol and his champions head-on. The fates of Warworld and all who live under Mongol's rule hang in the balance. But he who holds all the chains is better prepared than Superman knows. Not everyone walks away from this one. So that's a big promise. So we might see one of the Authority fall. That's going to be very interesting. Next up, we have Teen Titans Academy number eight. This is written by Tim Sheridan with art by Mike Norton. And the book's been great. The book's been really fun. Um, getting to have fun with this book is just, I mean, it's its great. I love fun in my comic books. And even though I think Strange Academy does it a lot better, having the young heroes of Teen Titans Academy, you know, in this process gives you a lot of of characters to play with and a lot of characters to explore so i'm looking forward to this let's go ahead and check out the synopsis here the haunting of titan's tower it's halloween at the academy it's a little late that means homecoming is fast approaching with the freshmen excited about getting in touch with their spooky sides the faculty again grapples with the scary threat posed by their rogue student the mysterious red X. Luckily, this time the Titans have help from some old friends who have, at long last, come home. So that sounds fun. Um, hopefully we're going to see more classic Titans. We will just have to see. Next up, we have Human Target number two. This is written by Tom King with art by Greg Smallwood. I really enjoyed issue one. I just, I love the Smallwood art. Tom King continues to pair up with the best artists in the biz to tell his stories, and I love him for it. And I'm really excited about this story. It's a murder mystery. What do you want from me? You know I'm going to love this. Let's Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Chapter 2. We Cry Christopher Chance now has 11 days to solve his own murder. With almost no leads, it would seem the case of his own death has gone cold. But it's about to get a whole lot colder. Enter 
ICE. Former member of Justice League International arriving at Chance's office with some unexpected information and mysterious intentions. It's that classic, she could have walked into any bar in the world, but the dame walked into mine. I love this. I love old school shit like this. I'm very excited about it. Next up, we have Marauders number 26. This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lolly. And uh, it's more Marauders in Spurs. So uh, I'm very excited to see this, especially with what it's promising on this cover. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. How to Fight Your Dragon While a new representative of Krakoa hits the international stage, the Marauders find themselves face to snout with he whose limbs shatter mountains and whose back scrapes the sun, Fin Fang Foom himself. Yeah, gimme Fin Fang Foom. I love this. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Justice League Incarnate number one. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Dennis Culver, uh, Tom Derenick, Brandon Peterson, and Andre Brisson. Big ol' murderer's row of artists here. Uh, this is the next step in the DC Infinite uh what is it called oh my god um infinite uh frontier infinite frontier there it is um the next step in that saga bringing together the justice league of many worlds to deal with the next threat so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis and see what it's all about the world's outside your window Following a devastating defeat at the hands of the one true dark side, the Superman of Earth-23 leads a team of superheroes from myriad worlds that includes Flashpoint Batman, China's Flash from Earth-Zero, Captain Carrot from Earth-26, and the brand new superhero Doctor Multiverse from Earth-8 in a last-ditch effort to stop the end of every possible universe as we know it. This can't-miss series is the next thrilling chapter in the Infinite Frontier saga. That's what I said. So, I'm interested in this. This, you know, this cast seems really cool. Uh, We also see Mary Marvel, which is awesome. So, I am looking forward to this. Next up, we have Firepower, number 18. This is written by Robert Kirkman with art by Chris Somney. I love me some Firepower. And I, since we finished up the Geeksplain Book Club on Invincible, I'm still on a Robert Kirkman high. So, I'm very excited to check this out. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The unthinkable has happened. The world has changed for the Johnson family, for the Temple of the Flaming Fist, for the Scorched Earth clan, for everyone on Earth. This will be a major turning point for the series. You have been warned. Yikes, that's ominous. Um, Looking forward to this. This is going to be incredible. I can already tell. Next up, we have The Death of Doctor Strange, Spider-Man number one. This is written by Jed McKay with art by Marcelo Ferreira. And I am very excited to see how this pans out because, of course, Pete has always had a really close relationship with Stephen Strange, but it ain't Pete in the Spider-Man duds as of right now. It's Ben Riley. So having Ben interact with all the goings-on when it comes to the death of Doctor Strange makes me very excited. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
This ain't Ben Riley's first rodeo as Spider-Man, but he's never had to deal with the death of the Sorcerer Supreme and what it does to New York City. Part of Strange's will and testament was to ask Spidey to deal with particular problems. Is Ben up to it? Black Cat isn't a big Ben fan, so is she riding shotgun because she owes Strange to keep an eye on Ben or to sabotage Ben? Oh, that's fun. That's exciting. I love this. This is going to be really fun. Next up, we have, appropriately, The Amazing Spider-Man number 80. This is written by Cody Ziegler with art by Michael Dowling. And this is not the direction I thought this was going to go, but I'm very excited about this. Uh, it's Spidey versus Craven. What more do you want from me? Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Beyond Chapter 6. Craven's trap is sprung and Spider-Man is sent into a hallucinatory spiral that will test his sanity like never before. For Spider-Man to get through this, he's going to have to do the impossible. I mean, that's Spidey's M.O., but is Ben Riley up to it? Yes. Hell yes. I'm very excited about this. Cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Batman Fear State Omega number one. This is written by James Tynan IV with art by Guillaume March, Trevor Harrison, Ryan Benjamin, Christian Deuce, Ricardo Federici, and uh, yeah. This is the, I guess this is the end. <laughs> this is the end of the Tynan run before we jump into the Williamson run. Uh, this is, this has got a lot of stuff it needs to wrap up. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. As Gotham's fear state comes to a close, a new day dawns on the city. One without Batman. But the Dark Knight's absence does not mean the city is without heroes. Join James Tynan IV and Ricardo Federici as they bring Fear State to its conclusion and introduce a new status quo that will reverberate throughout the DCU for years to come. So with Batman reverting to the Batman Incorporated suit in the Williamson run and this promising a new status quo, maybe we're going to get the return of Batman Incorporated. Who knows? But I'm looking forward to picking this up. Next up, we have X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, number four. This is written by Leah Williams with art by Lucas Werneck and David Messina. And this book has been a trip, man. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm loving it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Double, double, toil and trouble. A wonder divided cannot stand, but there are many other things she can do. Chaos comes to Krakoa. So there's a lot going on. There's theories about Wanda, her acts in all this, her involvement. We don't know. Hoping for some answers, but I'm loving the ride. Next up, we have Nightwing, annual, Nightwing 2021 Annual Number 1, written by Tom Taylor with art by Daniel HDR and Sian Cormi, or Tormi, excuse me. Um, this is the Nightwing Red Hood story that Tom King has been teasing on Twitter for a while, and this looks, I mean, if it's anywhere near the great Nightwing and Red Hood stories we've gotten in the past, and I think... Tom Taylor has the chops to do it. This is going to be an all-timer. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Blood Brothers. Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, the first Robins, both long ago stepped out of the shadows of the Bat and began walking very different paths on their respective journeys to become who they are today. 
But now their paths converge, and these two brothers unite under one goal. With Escramistic and a crowbar combined, Nightwing and Red Hood are ready for anything. Anything except what they have to face next. Don't miss out on this explosive adventure. So that sounds fun. I'm excited. Looking forward to this. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Daredevil number 36. It's Daresember, y'all. It's time. This is the end of the Zadarsky run, written by Chip Zadarsky, art by Manuel Garcia. I'm kind of sad they didn't bring back our boy for this, but... I understand he's probably doing the art for Devil's Reign, and this is going to lead directly into that. So we will see that Chiquetto art. I know it. But this is the end of lockdown. This is the end of the initial run. This is the final issue. It says so in the solicit. Has a gorgeous Double Daredevil cover. I'm looking forward to this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Lockdown, part six. After a romance that's blossomed over the last two years in Daredevil, Mayor Wilson, Fisk, and Typhoid Mary are prepared to tie the knot. But in a fashion truly befitting the House of Ideas, calamity is right around the corner for the happy couple. But what sort of terrible discovery could be so monumental as to derail the most powerful man in New York's special day? The answer lies in this oversized special issue. If you've got no other Daredevil issue this year, you must get this one so i mean that's big that is big stakes i wouldn't recommend this being your first daredevil issue you should get it but you should also get all the other ones <laughs> it's 36 issues of perfection so um pick this up it's incredible I'm very excited to see what this brings and where we go next with Devil's Reign. But that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap this gigantic list, uh, we have Batman 2021 Annual Number 1, Robin 2021 Annual Number 1, Detective Comics 2021 Annual Number 1, Wonder Girl Number 5, Action Comics Number 1037, Teen Titans Academy Number 8, Human Target Number 2, Marauders Number 26, Justice League Incarnate Number 1, Firepower Number 18, The Deck of Doctor Strange, Spider-Man number one, The Amazing Spider-Man number 80, Batman Fear State Omega number one, X-Men The Trial of Magneto number four, Nightwing 2021 Annual number one, and Daredevil number 36. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really do help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, basically raises our stock up and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. We're up to 19 ratings. We're up to 19 ratings. I would love to finish off December with our 20th rating. So if you want to be our 20th rating and review, Please feel free to give us that five-star rating and review. You can write whatever you want in there. I will read it here. As long as you give me that five stars, the floor is yours. And you can join the likes of our Dirty Dozen, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, and 
sass. I want to say a big thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geek Explained mailbag, you want to ask me a question, maybe you want to get a quick pitch, my thoughts on something, or if you just want to get some recommendations on something we haven't covered on the podcast yet, feel free to email me, send your emails to geeksplain at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the podcast, like our good friend Gaius McCain, always good to hear from Gaius here, uh, he writes, hi Eric, hello. He writes, I just listened to your last book club, and I'm really excited for Ultimate Spider-Man. Yes, I'm going to talk about it in just a second, but he says, thank you for taking my suggestion. Also, I'm really excited for your Spidey movie series, too. I'm a huge fan of Spider-Man and really excited for December. But for my question, I watched Eternals recently, and I despised it. It's my least favorite Marvel movie, but the rest of my family liked it. What are your thoughts on Eternals? And if you haven't seen it, then good job. (laughs) Not a fan of Eternals. So he says, uh, also Hawkeye dropped, and it is my second favorite Marvel project. Property. I loved it. Didn't know if you were going to cover it on your weekly review, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Sorry I went a little long here, but I had a lot of things to talk about. Love your podcast, and I listen to it every Wednesday. Gaius, thank you for writing. Always great to hear from you. And yes, uh, as you can obviously tell if you've gotten to this point in the podcast, I did watch Hawkeye. I loved Hawkeye. I will be covering it for the weekly review. Very excited to see the rest of it. When it comes to Eternals... I liked it. I didn't love it. I didn't think it was, you know, it's nowhere near, you know, top 20 even in the films. It's gorgeous to look at. One of the prettiest MCU films you've ever seen. Uh, Chloe Zhao did as good a job as she could have done uh, making that film breathe and really making it as gorgeous as it was. I feel like with the stories that they had, we didn't have enough time with each of the Eternals to really care about them as much as we wanted to. Um, I do think that it would have worked better as a series, whether it was like a mini series, whether it was like, you know, you give Chloe Zhao the HBO Max style budget and you tell her, make 10 episodes of this. And I think it would have gone on a lot better. We would have gotten more time with these characters. And overall, it did feel a little rushed. I do love cosmic-y, cosmic-y stuff though. So I am interested to see where they go from it. I'd probably give it like a 6, 6, maybe 6.5 out of 10. Uh, My experience was ruined, unfortunately, by the horrible theater experience we had, but neither here nor there. Uh, The film, I think, has a lot of things going for it, but it's not executed as well as I would have liked. And finally, for your last point, Spider-Man! Yes, we do have a lot of Spider-Man stuff coming up. Um, I'll get into it more later. Um, But yes, I'm very excited for all the Spider-Man content we are going to be bringing to you. So thank you guys for writing in. Next up, we have a letter from our boy Russell Swinehammer. Always good to hear from Swinehammer. And he writes... Hey Eric, hello. It says, hope you're doing well. I really enjoyed following the book club for Invincible. I had a strong feeling you were going to continue this, but had no idea what you had planned. It was a fun ride listening to you guys go over such a pinnacle and influential comic. It's bittersweet that it has to come to an end, but it was a hell of a ride. I finished listening to it Tuesday before work, and as you announced that you were going to do another one, the sun began to poke through the clouds, and by the time the song came on at the very end, the sun was fully shining and it started to warm things up. Just a great feeling and further solidified my love for your channel thanks again for being the best part of my work week take care can't wait to hear from you on wednesdays just 
I love emails like this. Um, it just, it, I genuinely love when you guys write in. Like, honestly, you know, I know that, you know, for engagement and whatnot, like, it's good to have people writing and engaging with you. But, like, I genuinely love knowing that this podcast helps people get through their week. That it's, you know, whatever we do on here, because it's just, it's me just putting this stuff together. And obviously, with my amazing co-hosts on the book club, Malcolm and Jacob, and with the incredible spidey sember co-host i'm gonna have up here the returning chris carter and aj kincaid um it's just great to hear that and i really appreciate writing you know getting to read stuff like this so thank you russell um yeah uh i am again absolutely bittersweet about the geeksplain book club wrapping up its first season but very excited about its second season which i'm going to get into just a little bit um it was a hell of a ride and i am hoping that our second season of the book club is going to be just as fun but that is going to do it for the mailbag thank you to guys and russell for writing in always a pleasure to hear from them and again if you want to write in have your email read here on the podcast Write your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Puts mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here. Finally, if you want to follow up with the podcast, get first notifications on episodes dropping, on uh, announcements for the podcast. We announced the next, we announced this series that I'm about to talk about here on Twitter. Uh, if you want to participate in polls that decide future episodes, or if you just want to shoot the shit with me and the latest geeky news, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. At Pod is the handle. That's at Pod. D. Um, yeah, I we're we're getting close to 200 on uh, on Twitter, so that would be a hell of a Christmas present for the podcast. Uh, but yeah, that is uh, it's going to wrap up all the plugs and a couple more plugs for series that we're doing. Uh, we wrapped up the Geek Explained Book Club this past Friday. Episode number 29, talking about issue 144 and doing a full retrospective on the series. Geeksplain Book Club is going to be taking a bit of a break, a bit of a hiatus to let it breathe. And then we're going to be right back here on December 7th, starting things off with volume one of Ultimate Spider-Man. Malcolm, Jacob, and I are very excited to dive into the series. I have never read it, so I'm very excited to read it and talk about it. Going to be a fun time. But in the more immediate future... As you're maybe as you're listening to this right now, we are doing another Spidey themed series. This one we're calling Spidey Sember, where we are going through every single theatrically released Spider-Man film from the Raimi, the first Raimi film, all the way up to Far From Home. We're going through it every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, starting today. As you are listening to this, we are dropping our episode for Spider-Man 2002, uh, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, James Franco, Kirsten Dunst, and the like. So tune in for that. It's going to be me, AJ Kincaid, Chris Carter, the boys who brought you out or into the Snyderverse earlier this year are going through all of the Spider-Man films. So look out for that. 
uh, Wednesday we're starting this. Then every Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the lead up to No Way Home, look for a brand new episode of that series releasing alongside the main podcast. So lots of really fun stuff. December is a packed month for Geek Explained content, and I am very excited about next week's episode. So better get yourself ready because next week we are diving into not just Spidey December but Daresember, as Matt Draper returns to the podcast to chat about the Chip Zdarsky run on Daredevil. We're going to do a full retrospective on the series, chat about the things we liked, things we might not have liked, and talk about what we're expecting going into Devil's Reign. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time. Thank you.